Hi, y'all, and welcome to the Bible Bitches podcast, where we talk about biblical and religious topics from a feminist comedic perspective. I'm here with a one Sarah Hoff, an awesome agnostic living in LA, California. I am here with Laura Barclay, better known as Bearclaw, a um, mm-hmm. Baptist minister located in Louisville, Kentucky. And we're back for part two of Christian cults. Also, the first part was Christian utopias. It's true. It's true. And like, I feel like we sort of parsed out that you ut- like the difference between utopias and cults is real like squishy, right? It's super squishy. Like, I feel like maybe the only difference in utopias and cults is the century they're in. Like in the 20th century, we started calling a spade a spade and the religious groups, but they also, the religious groups kind of, the splinters got out of the cults got a little more crazy. May I suggest? Yes. That an important difference, at least the, an important difference for the cults and the utopias that we're talking about is largely the use of drugs. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely a uh, a use of drugs, like even more coercion, even more isolation. Yeah, um, like it's it's like everything got ramped up. So the utopias we were talking about, like I feel like I'm gonna take the shaker out of it, like and, and talk about you know, <laughs> all right, um, like the Oneida colony, there was definitely some coercion about sex. There was, um, there were some good things. There were some really bad things question did they uh i forget did they have strict rules in the oneida colony about drugs and alcohol i i couldn't find that out i don't know i don't know if they were okay with drinking or or drugs but i think you're right so they were living in a utopia uh like a community so i think there was some sense of isolation with that but they also did interact with the outside world because people came in and sort of bought their wares so yeah i mean i think we talked a lot about how coercion and like uh you know, authoritarianism. There was a little bit of authoritarianism in the Oneida colony. Um, but that gets, all that gets ramped up loads in the examples that we're going to give. Um, so I think there was, there, it was a little bit of both, like things ramped up. And we also kind of started calling a spade a spade in the 20th century. Um, so there were more controlling leaders and really intense devotion that followed with that. Well, yeah. And I also think that I mean, you're right. Like, it doesn't seem like we started calling things cults until, until like the fifties, right? It seems like it. Like later. And it also wasn't, when was like, maybe there isn't, maybe there isn't a causation. There probably isn't, but uh, is there something of correlation between like LSD becoming popularized in the like sixties and seventies and also cults ramping up oh my gosh well wasn't there like uh there was like a lot of drug use and stuff in the um in the manson like we we don't talk about manson yeah. at all here but they're like there's certainly yeah that well and sure. even like jim jones who we talked about he did he was on like uppers and downers uppers and downers all the time oh, he was on all the things which you like i'm not knocking it i'm that. knocking it I'm knocking it. I'm going to knock it because you can't be in an authoritarian position and oh, like, you know, you can't do like, sure. Like anything yeah. in an extreme, you can't abuse, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Like all these this things. is not, this is not like, this is not like, you know, cause I'm not about criminalizing drugs, but this is like, you know, not just recreational. It's not like, you know, uh, for, you know, 
any sort of medicinal use. This was, this guy was just like, oh, we'll talk yeah. about it a little, a little bit more as we go on. But yeah, Jim Jones, man. Oh. Yeah, he, he goes to a dark place. Very dark. <laughs> I'm underselling it. She gets, <laughs> um, anyways. She gets real. So people simple, Jim Jones. We've all heard of Jim Jones. But like, I don't, I mean, like, I honestly, like, didn't really know a lot about what exactly happened there until pretty recently, until like this. Mm -hmm. So, People Simple, um, we're going to draw heavily from a documentary called Jonestown Paradise Lost from 2007 that aired on the History Channel back when the History Channel actually aired history stuff and not alien conspiracies and pawn shop reality shows. Also, like, does the history is the history channel just like living into this jokey this joke like i feel like they must be because yeah, it's just like pawn shop like that pawn shop show like all the time like they're that alien guy is like aliens like it's yeah right it's, and like everybody like everybody knows now like yeah but it's not you can't take it seriously anymore do you feel like i feel like the its predecessors are probably like this isn't what we intended. <laughs> right. <laughs> they just have to sell it to the Fox News people at that point. It's like maybe maybe it's owned by those people. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, anyways, in this documentary, Jonestown Paradise Lost, uh, they actually interview the cult leader, Jim Jones' son, Stefan. Um, and you can find the whole thing on YouTube for free. It's pretty fucking interesting. Um, he has a lot to say, and and also he like grew up in the cult, so he has like a very first person perspective. Yeah, and also shout out to Aaron Smith because he was like, "I'm gonna send you some research too," because he's just so excited about cults in general. So um, he was like, "I'm just gonna send you some research." So shout out to Aaron Smith. I mean, he's um, not so excited about cults are the most fascinating. They're so fascinating, right? And I can't, I don't know that I actually heard them say one way or the other if it's Stefan or Steven, but I'm going to say Stefan because it sounds more fun. Um, because he's Urkel and his alter ego. Yes, yes. <laughs> Throwback. Um, I think what's also scary is this was a liberal cult. Like Jim Jones was white, but according to an ABC article fo uh, following up with Jones surviving kids, the People's Temple was originally found in Indiana weirdly um i'm in kentucky so it's like just right up right up north and they were into social justice race and class equality and desegregation um his son St uh steven stefan uh jones states i lived in a community that was filled with every walk of life every color in the rainbow every level of education for the most part we lived in harmony most of the time especially early on it was not fake i am so grateful for that because it showed me the truth of that the beauty of that the importance of that so I loved that about him. Yeah. First of all, we're going to have to decide. You're going to, we're going to go with Stefan. Stefan, let's do it. And like, we've all heard these phrases, don't drink the Kool-Aid or they drank the Kool-Aid. Um, and, and like, I feel like we all kind of know that it comes from a reference of somebody believing in something outlandish or like, you know, watching Fox News, joining Costco, like whatever. Um, <laughs> and this story will well, is like the root of it. Like we're going to figure out or we're going to find out the etymology of they drank the Kool-Aid. Yes. And spoiler alert, it wasn't actually Kool-Aid. No, it was, it was a flavor aid. Yeah. Kool-Aid got a, had a real bad rap out of, out of that. Um, 
I have 100% drink the Costco Kool-Aid, though, and I am an evangelist for their wares. Yeah, like, they, have, they have such good pizza. Yes. Fucking pizza. They've got good pizza. They've got cheap liquor. They've got, like... They're fucking churros. Dude. <sighs> Dude. The best snacks. So good. The best. Like, if I ever just want to buy a case of, like, Magnum, you know, Yellowtail... That's the place to go. <laughs> You're just like open open it up and put a straw in it. <laughs> That's you at a music festival. <laughs> yeah. I basically become a Verona Sulk, the blueberry, <laughs> except for it's all booze inside of me. It's all just like yellow tail wine. <laughs> Thank you, Costco. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so let's start with Jim Jones, the head of the People's Temple, which started in Indiana. He was ordained by the Assemblies of God and the Disciples of Christ, which is bananas because the DOC church is, they're normally amazing, and I think that's because they now have anti-cult protocols, they're really progressive, Uh, but those anti-cult protocols, according to our former guest Derek Penwell, uh, who was also a DOC pastor, they were put in place after uh jim jones went through this they were like oh shit we've got to be able to intervene and stop whatever somebody decides to start a cult i mean rightfully so right that's just good that's just good practice best practice i mean i'd i I think it would be funny if they were like well you know maybe let's just do the like law of three if it happens three times You know, it's just a one-time thing. Yeah, like, it's probably a one-off. Like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have seen that yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, anyhow, like, uh, like a lot of cult leaders, he claimed, Jim Jones claimed to have special powers. He staged healings, not unlike modern televangelists. Um, mm-hmm. Called himself a prophet, and his followers referred to him as father. Many signed over paychecks to the church, um, but in the mid-1970s, former church members accused him of physical and psychological abuse and mind control, and then, of course, the media began to pick up on this. So Jim Jones's solution was to leave the U.S. in 1977 for Guyana, a country in North South America, building, quote, a paradise on earth called Jonestown after himself, Jim Jones. So uh, Jim Jones told his people that the charges were a um, that that were kind of being brought up against him, you know, about these the psychological abuse and physical abuse um, that they were a government conspiracy to destroy their community. And according to survivor uh, Vernon Gosney, in the documentary, people weren't free to leave once they got there. Once they got to Guyana, um, it, in Guyana, the Jones the Jonestown settlement, they weren't allowed to leave. Um, Jones, Jim Jones became increasingly erratic, waking people up to preach at night, and um, he, there were armed guards surrounding them, and people were punished if they tried to escape. They were very isolated. They had no phones or TVs. Survivors said that most people there really believed in a communal society and that those values were not being judged upon race. Um, it was very diverse. But the line to obey Jones just kept getting more and more authoritarian and more severe, which leads us to November of 1978, when things really start to come to a head. 
Yeah. And like, I'd like to give a little bit of kind of just paint a little bit of a picture of this like moment, right? So he's now in South America and he has this, what, like 2000 large, like a thousand large population. Like there were a lot of people. There were a lot of people. But like, there are a lot of like interesting elements to this, right? Because they were getting a lot of like government subsidies. They, and they had a lot of like, like a well of resources but the land that they were on wasn't actually like good for farming so they were becoming increasingly like you know malnutritioned um they didn't have so like they're becoming increasingly more dependent on him while he is in turn like becoming increasingly more dependent on these drugs and like uppers and downers uppers and downers and like going crazy where they're like isolated i mean like imagine being not just like isolated in terms of like you don't have money to leave a place but it's like you're isolated in terms that you don't have like you don't have money to leave you don't even know where you are you wouldn't even know where to go if you could leave like all these kinds of things even if you could leave or tried to like you know he was he was like doing things where um any kind of media that his people would consume he would have like a guard watch it with them and then explain it to them so like they couldn't even like like it was it was very it was just this like whole broad crazy they can't even think for themselves right yeah it was just becoming more and more isolated becoming more and more uh dogmatic and severe and coupled with a very physical malnutrition right Mm -hmm. I think it was around a thousand people who were in the settlement. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. Um, Okay. So um, his son, Stefan Jones, who talks openly about his experience in the documentary and has spoken on a number of occasions about Jonestown, survived because his mom wanted him out of the town. So so she sent him to Georgetown to play basketball with some of his buddies. Um, Because she was, like, feeling that concern that, like, tension about the situation um, because there was an American delegate delegation. Yeah. It was kind of a whole delegation coming down to investigate all of the abuse that was yeah. happening. So it wasn't just like one person. It was like, okay. I just, yeah. I it was, yeah. So it was actually going to be, um, it was, it, it was happening on Tuesday, November 14th, 1978 and U S Congressman Leo J Ryan and his a Jackie Spear flew to Guyana with the relatives, um, some of the relatives of the cult members who wanted to rescue them, and members of the media to investigate the abuse allegations, like beatings, death threats, and taking people's temple uh, members' kids out of their custody. So they were sort of removing children from former members and just keeping them, right? Or families would splinter and they would keep the kids. Right. Yeah, I mean, but they were also abusing the kids too. Like they were um, isolating them if they were got in trouble. There was they were like, isolating them. Yeah. yeah. So like, uh, so there were a lot of parents that were coming down to get their sort of adult kids, and you know, oh, yeah, or, or like, or like adult or teen kids, like trying to get them back. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So this plane's coming in, and they know it's coming, and uh, so it it's the tension is rising, right? Yeah, and so. Again, um, wait, actually, I do have a question about that. So mm-hmm. when Stephen goes to Georgetown to play basketball, does he stay there for a day or two or is, does he go? Yeah. Okay. He's, staying, he's staying there. Um, there's a house 
um, that the People's Temple has in Georgetown, and they're, he's staying in that house, and okay. they're playing games um, in Georgetown yes. with against other teams. So he's yes. there for a few days. Okay, so is it like a tournament? Yeah, it might be. It wasn't really specified in the documentary, but he's there for a few days to play. Yeah. Okay. So the next day, November 15th, 1978, Congressman Ryan confronts members at the People's Temple's house in Georgetown, where Stephen and the rest of the the basketball team were. And Stephen, or Stephen, sorry, Stephen briefly talks with Ryan about his basketball games. Over a ham radio they used for communication, um, Jim Jones ordered Stephen to come home, and Stephen was like, no, because he wanted to play, keep playing ball. This enraged Jim Jones and Stephen, Stephen, I want to keep on calling him Stephen. Stephen described it as his father was like, he said he was, his father was slowly killing himself on drugs and was nuts at this point. And we'll get more into that later. Yeah. And so this brings us to Friday, November 17th. 1978, Jim Jones waffled between letting and not letting Congressman Ryan into Jonestown, and his um, his party that he was with convinced Jim Jones to let Ryan in. Uh, survivor Vernon Gosney describes a lot of work to spruce the place up and practice what to say in an atmosphere of us versus them. Gosney and his friend Monica Bagby plan to slip congressman, the congressman uh, Ryan a note that says, help us get out of Jonestown. So there was a lot of rehearsal about what you're going to tell the congressman, that it's great here, that you love it here. And Jim Jones would um, monitor them practicing and chastise them if they got it wrong. Right. And so then the next day, November 18th, is where shit just hit the fan. Uh, Congressman Ryan and his crew fly into the local airstrip um, and realize just how isolated Jonestown is. At first, only the congressman is allowed to travel to Jonestown. But um, so like he goes, but then for some reason, a truck comes back to the airstrip a few hours later and picks up the rest of the party. Gosney said, if I passed a note to Congressman Ryan and it was unsuccessful, I would be killed. So he's trying to get out. Like he's understanding that gravity of the situation and is still like risking his life to to do this um he passes this note somehow the congressman gets it it's amazing and the guards become immediately suspicious gosney warns how dangerous things are and soon about a dozen people want to defect to the u.s and congressman ryan thinks about staying behind to negotiate the release of more people but a member of Jonestown attacks Congressman Ryan, escalating the situation. So Congressman Ryan decides to leave with everybody else who's defecting for the airfield. And soon um, at the airfield, a tractor full of armed Jonestown members block their plane and begin shooting, and they kill Congressman Ryan on the tarmac. Um, They kill other journalists and defectors. Um, survivor Vernon uh, Gosney is shot and wrestling with a guy who faked being a defector with him. So there was kind of like Jonestown, the, the um, Jim Jones had a guy on the inside who was faking being a defector and then shot some people on the, like on the plane inside as the other truck is pulling up to also shoot them. And a journalist named Tim Reiterman of the LA times is hit and he runs hiding into the tall grass and here's Jonestown people executing wounded people on the airstrip. 
Five people were murdered total on that airstrip and 11 are wounded, but both Vernon Gosney and the journalist Tim Reiterman of the LA Times survived. Can you fucking imagine? It's horrifying. I, it's horrifying. And, and it talks about how they sort of like laid in wait in the grass, just like waiting it out, like worried that everyone else is dead. Yeah. I, I can't, I like, I can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend the like amount of just terror you would feel in that moment. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> There's no good sequitur. There's no good sequitur. No, we're, it's, it's, we're just in the shit now, people. We're in yeah. the shit. That's all this is. Um, so we're still on Saturday. Jim Jones gives the order to die in Jonestown and then radioed over to uh, Georgetown to announce the same, right? That's where Stephen was. Stephen leaves and doesn't follow through with the order, though others in Georgetown do via knife. And it's not exactly clear how that works. I mean, I think mostly just they got stabbed to death, but it was kind of this thing where there were only a few people there and there was like one person who took control and like stabbed a bunch of other people and then somebody stabbed her. Yeah, it was, it was gnarly, gnarly way to die. I would not want Mm -hmm. to die from stabbing. Mm -hmm. Um, The plan over at Jonestown was to mix cyanide with Flavorade, drink the Kool-Aid, you guys get it, and totally inappropriate aside, Y'all, like, like, way, way to go, Kool-Aid, for being able to, like, weather that storm. All I- and, and, like, boldly. Like, I have no, I, I have no idea if the, the big Kool-Aid pitcher guy was before or after that, but, like, it's pretty bold to be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, after that. Yeah, like, <laughs> 10 years later, I remember, I definitely remember the Kool-Aid guy, and, like, now, now, like, this idea of like drink the Kool-Aid, I I think is like very disassociated with Kool-Aid the brand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Like whenever I think Kool-Aid, I don't think drink the Kool-Aid really. I think of I think of the like the Kool-Aid guy, right? Yeah. Bursting through my wall, telling yeah. me to drink Kool-Aid, which is weird because that's also creepy, but it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyways. Like, it's important to note here, and, like, Stefan notes that, like, by this time, people are exhausted, they're demoralized, they're malnourished, and, like, and that makes sense, because, again, like, where they were, they're so isolated, they're on land that isn't good for farming, and so their resources are running dry, and, like, they're just, they're just, like, basically primed to do whatever Jim Jones says, and children horribly are the first to die. Yeah, and some drank the lethal concoction of the cyanide and flavor aid, and some had to be injected with it because they resisted. Uh, Jim Jones's wife actually fought uh, against Jim Jones and the, um, the guards until all the kids were dead, and then she didn't care anymore, and she walked up and took the medicine herself, giving up, which is just such a kind of horrific thing to imagine, right? That she's just seeing all of this go terribly wrong and, and trying to stop, uh, trying to stop it. And then just knowing that there's, you know, it doesn't even matter anymore. Um, Jim Jones had to get another person to shoot him in the head because he wouldn't drink the Kool-Aid. Um, 
So he wanted everyone else to do it and then couldn't do it himself, right? Um, only a handful of survivors from the Jonestown camp survived by fleeing into the woods or hiding under a bed. 908 members of Jonestown died and almost 300 of them were children. And that's just unconscionable. Like I can't wrap my mind around that really. It's just kind of too horrific to even picture. This resulted in the greatest single loss of American civilian life in a non-natural disaster until September 11th, 2001. It was a mass murder and not a mass suicide, says surviving journalist Tim Reiterman, who, if you'll remember, was one of the ones shot and, and crawled into the grass to survive on the, tar the tarmac, uh, and he was of the LA Times. And he said that Jim Jones didn't want word to get out about what was going on inside of his community. Like he wanted, when he realized that it was, he wanted to die on his own terms, but he forced everyone with him. And it was, it was a murder, right? It was very, very coerced. So all these people who were there wanting this kind of utopian society, they were, they were coerced into their death. Right. Stefan um, says he believes his father's primary purpose was to bust down the walls and to create a community, community where all are welcome, no matter where they come from. But he lost complete sight of that. His entire existence was superficial. He continues, my experience with my father was more an actor than genuine, almost always. He was always aware of eyes on him because all that mattered to my father was his perception of other people's perception of him. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I actually am like, I think it's really great that he's so transparent about this because it kind of shows uh, how this can happen in a way. Like he, this kind of lethal mix of power and uh, drugs and, uh, you know, unchecked uh, authoritarianism is an abuse. It, it was just a lethal concoction. Um, and Jim Jones's other son, Jim Jones Jr. states, depending on the day, depending on my self-worth, depending on the blessings that I see in my life, do I feel blessed that I was Jim Jones's son or do I feel cursed? I'm proud to be Jim Jones Jr. I think that's my 40-year celebration of life. That it's not how you got to someplace, it's how you move on. So there is this sense of um, his surviving children that, uh, of what they've kind of had to overcome to wrestle with their legacy. Yeah. Oh my God. I can't imagine. Nope. Um, yeah. So revisiting Jones's drug use, according to San Diego State University's Department of Religion website, which runs a section on Jonestown research, quote, Jones put himself on a merry-go-round of stimulants like amphetamines to get himself going and, and sometimes going deep into the night when everyone else was ready for, bar for bed and barbiturates like pentobarbital, pentobarbital to reduce stress and allow him to sleep. His autopsy found levels of pentobarbital within the toxic range, and in some cases of drug overdoses have been su sufficient to cause death. The fact that the use of downers had not led to his death resulted in part from a tolerance that can be developed to barbiturates over a period of time. So basically, he was just like, this is an extended period of drug use. He was becoming more and more uh, used to them. and. Yeah, psychotic, psychotic, paranoid. Plus, yeah, so maybe like authoritarianism plus heavy drug use that makes you paranoid and psychotic. It's a bad idea. 
I mean, maybe that's, is that our takeaway? I don't know. It doesn't sound like it was crazy at first, right? Like he, um, like, did he start getting paranoid because of his drug use, which led to more authoritarianism that led to more, you know, what do you know what I mean? Like, who knows? Yeah. Like how did it, how did it spiral out of control? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like it started out small and then the more power and the more drugs, it just, it just got worse. Right. Like, like who knows if he had stayed like the pastor of a small town church, like would it, would, you know what? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, sure. Maybe if he didn't have access to drugs. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I just kind of, I feel like it probably brought out, uh, I feel like it probably accentuated and advanced what was already there. Um, but it's, so it definitely made it worse. I don't know how, you know, I don't, who can say it's, who can say? Um, but hey, authoritarianism yeah, and yeah. Uh, and heavy drug use, <laughs> not good. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna put a pin in this um, in in Jonestown because that was that was who that was a lot, um, and we're gonna move on to an equally heavy topic of Heaven's Gate, uh, which existed from about. Um, 1972 to 1997. Yeah, a great article on Heaven's Gate uh, that we actually found was Eyes on Glory, Pied Pipers of Heaven's Gate, published by Barry Burrick, Burrick, in the in in the New York Times, April 20, 28th, 1997. Yeah, so uh, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, the two founders of Heaven's Gate, were interesting characters. Apple White was a teacher and singer and son of a Presbyterian minister. He was known to have a double life, one that had a wife and kids, and the other, he had a lover, um, uh, like a male lover. So in, in one, one side of his life, he was completely, like, he acted like he was totally heterosexual with kids, and then this other hidden life, um, he had a male lover. There is some speculation that his conflicted feelings over his sexuality led to his belief in celibacy for all later. Um, however, this is kind of conflicting because he also believed that homosexuality was superior to heterosexuality. So um, it's, it's just very interesting, his views on sexuality and how this factors in. Applewhite had been reading a lot of science fiction and was he, he was kind of searching for something. What's, what's his higher kind of goal? And his teaching colleagues had noticed that he was behaving erratically, frequently changing the subject, and not able to have a coherent conversation. Are you sure that he hadn't just been reading a lot of, like, ancient Greco-Roman writing? Right? It kind of does sound like that, doesn't it? Like, he's kind of... Because that's exactly, you know, like, everybody everybody in Greece had, like, a, like all the males in Greece had, like, a wife, and then they had, like, a male lover on the side, and... Right. Yeah, 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 and and that that male love was more superior to female. Yeah, it sounds like he was just like reading a shit ton of what like Plato or something. <laughs> I don't even think Plato, uh, Marcus Aurelius. Yes, yeah, probably. I don't know. Wait, who had the levels? Was that Plato? I can't even remember. I think it, I don't know. Well, and also like, it's just a, it's just a slog to read through. It's just boring as shit. Right. It's like something we all had to learn, and then at the end of the day, we're just like, you know what? Nope. <laughs> I'm okay with not revisiting that. I know that makes me a bad philosopher. You know uh, what? Does it? Is is I feel like philosophy has way too much of an emphasis on dead white dudes. 
right exactly still does so if you ask a, a white dude they're gonna be like that does make you a bad philosopher and they're gonna be like you need to uh look into gender or minority studies and i'm gonna be like why aren't we including that in philosophy but that's right that was my own tangent it's all philosophy yep i love that tangent i want to co-sign on that tangent yeah fuck you all anyway co-signed <laughs> bonnie was the baptist first of all <laughs> fucking bonnie Anybody. bonnie was a baptist it's a it's a good country song it does, it does sound like a good like a good story song where you're gonna find out her tragic life uh, oh my god, it does. Bonnie was a Baptist who had been married with kids. <laughs> like, like, this whole paragraph could actually be a country song. Uh, that's trademark. Nobody can get that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's Lara's song now. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Bonnie, Baptist, who was a Baptist, who had been married with kids for over two decades, but believed in astrology, because sure, and held old school seances at her house. That's kind of fun. That's kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, you know, who doesn't want to conjure up the dead? Right. Um, um, anyways, after their respective marriages ended, Bonnie and Marshall left their sp spouses and eventually met in acting class. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny to me. Wait, what city is this in? Please tell me it's like Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> this ends so tragically but it is oh it's, so san, diego. it's san diego Mar <laughs> okay marshall applewhite and bonnie nettles after meeting in this acting class they just <laughs> they're just trying to live their best lives uh they found is it like how people now, um, instead of doing like Toastmasters, they sign up for an improv class? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, shout out to my friend Aaron Smith, who's also in improv. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and yes, and just keep yes anding people. Yes, and yes, and yes, and. <laughs> okay, so Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, uh, after meeting in their acting class and having their midlife crisis, found Heaven's Gate in San Diego in 1972. They believed they were two lampstands uh, that were mentioned in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 13. They firmly believed they would be assassinated and be resurrected three days later into a cloud, after which God would begin to destroy the world. It's really hard to keep a straight face through this. It's, can, you uh, just, can you just claim this? Can I be like, I'm one of the seven bowls? Oh, then I want to be one of the seven scrolls. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I am now. I am going to help usher in the second coming of Christ because I am a bowl. And I am a scroll. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, you know, obviously they're getting pretty full of it. Full of what? Full shit. Of, they're getting full of shit. They're getting full of bowls, scrolls, and uh, lampstands, apparently. <laughs> Those lampstands, man, they'll do it to you. Um, they're, getting, they're getting full of all of it. And Marshall Applewhite thinks he can just take stuff because he's sent by God. So he drove away with a rented Mercury Comet, which is a kind of car? 
<laughs> yes. also committed credit card fraud and went to jail for six months in Missouri in 1974 and 19 separately 1974 1975 or 1974 to 19 I, mean, I think it was 1974 through part of like the end of 1974 going into 75 sure, sure he's making good choices he spent a lot of time thinking intellectually <laughs> to believe that the idea that a good life leads to heaven is as silly as believing that if a caterpillar dies a good caterpillar, it will mysteriously awaken in a rose bloom and live there forever with the king butterfly. What the fuck? Okay. There's a lot to parse out there. <laughs> we got a lot to go through. People have to go through the chrysalis stage overcoming their humanness and preparing for a life in the next level so we have to liquefy ourselves <laughs> ourselves and then become something else is that what's happening here i'm pretty sure this is the origin of the liquid diet it's <laughs> <laughs> good it's good um so to overcome your humanness going through that chrysalis stage you it's like an apprenticeship you require a teacher Jesus was one, sent by his father. Now, 2,000 years later, there are two more. Happily, not crazily, a man and a woman, he contended. Who do you think it is? Who do you think it is? Wait, wait, wait. I think I know. I think I, I know. It's Bonnie the Baptist. It's Bonnie the Baptist. And Marshall Applewhite. It's BTB. <laughs> You know what? At this point, why not? Like, why not? Yeah. Bonnie the Baptist and Marshall Applewhite. <laughs> you know they're getting it in for sure. <laughs> you know what, y'all? You think that's weird now? Like, it just gets weirder. Yeah. He's like 100% getting all up in her chrysalis. Anyways. Um, uh, okay. So, very, very fortuitously, not weirdly at all. Mm -mm. Um, they have now a man and a woman and a demonstration, quote unquote, of their truths would come, quote unquote, within months, he predicted when, like Jesus, the two would be killed only to be resurrected in a, quote unquote, cloud of light. The awesome cloud is what humans refer to as a UFO. God, fuck. <laughs> I love you guys. <laughs> right. If they had just, if they had not created a cult, like this would be adorable. Would it? Or would it just be insane nonsense that we would laugh at like we're currently doing? Yeah, it's more that. <laughs> it's more that. <laughs> okay, so to recap here, he thinks that people would have to go through this chrysalis stage to get to the next level, and they would need a teacher to do it. Jesus was one. And now he and Bunny the Baptist are going to do this. And then Marshall and, and Bonnie are going to be killed and resurrected into a cloud of light that humans would refer to as a UFO. That is a lot of conspiracy theories rolled into one, but here we are. <laughs> um, and this is how they came to believe that aliens would take members to the kingdom of heaven in their spaceships. In 1975, they started getting attention when they got 20 recruits to abandon their families and disappear. Walter Cronkite reported on the CBS Evening News 
and said that it's a mystery whether they've been taken on a so-called trip to eternity or simply taken. Spooky. As it turns out, they were all just camping like vagabonds all over the U.S. Not, not in a spaceship. The truth wasn't really out there so much as around. Were they just taken by their mental illness? I feel like they were taken by, this is what I keep coming back to, this need to belong. Like, I feel, I mean, I feel like Marshall and, Marshall and Bonnie had, had some issues, right? But, like, I feel like other people who get sucked into this stuff, like, a lot of times they just want this sense of belonging. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's really for sure what it is. And, and, like, the, the kind of, like, the passionate certainty. They really want to believe in the passionate certainty. Yeah. Um, Anyways. Okay, so Applewhite and Nettle were known as Doe and T, respectively, in the group and gave everyone aliases. They recruited people from all over, generationally and economically. A film editor, an accountant, a waiter, a student. Please note that sex was forbidden and any slip-up had to be publicly confessed. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, some members chose castration. Every day was heavily scheduled in 12-minute se- twelve minute segments, uh-huh. and people were assigned partners to ensure compliance. They wanted everyone to abandon a sense of individualism. So wait, like if you had like a gnarly poo? Yeah, I feel like somebody was just waiting outside that bathroom door being like, knock, 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 you still pooing? Yeah, like, dude, we've missed our 12-minute segment twice. <laughs> right. Just like... What what do what can I what do you need what do you need? Like, you need some Pepto. Like, how can we get this under control? <laughs> so, so you can kind of see at this point he was like they were both Bonnie and Marshall, aka Doe and T, were like really controlling everyone down to twelve minute segments and being like, you can't have sex if you have sex or slip up at any you know in any way. You're gonna be. Um, you're going to have to like kind of be ridiculed with the group and some people chose castration. Um, so Bonnie Nettles, AKA T died of cancer in the late 1980s and they changed some ideas like, Oh, Hey, maybe our body won't go into space, but we will get a new replica body in order to explain why Nettles, AKA T, uh, that her body didn't just disappear. Right. It was around for a funeral. And as the the year drew on afterwards, um, Applewhite grieved and was upset that he hadn't been assassinated, right? They hadn't been lifted up into a UFO. So he started polling the group on suicide. Like, how do y'all feel about a mass suicide? Um, And the group, (laughs) (laughs) right? That's feeling about this, right? I mean, like, can you imagine, like, hey, y'all, hear me out? (laughs) Yeah. That's just like an awkward meeting. Like, okay, like, you know, it's like old business, new business, new business. Yeah. Okay, I've just got a, like a little little idea. It might be a little kooky. What do you think? Um, so not surprisingly, the numbers dwindled over the years uh, from over 100 to around 40 members at this point in the mid-90s. Yeah, so uh, if you've heard of Heaven's Gate, you probably have heard of what happened in March 1997 when the comet... Haley Bop. Hail Bop. Hail Bop. Hail Bop. Bop. Not, not you. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, the comet Hail Bop. 
do up. <laughs> I can't stop. Best hillbop past the earth. Believing this comment was hiding a spaceship. A space. That's a spaceship, right? Was hiding a spaceship with aliens that would take their spirit away. Members planned a mass suicide. Wearing black tunics and Nikes, because Nike wants that publicity. 39 <laughs> Heaven's Gates members ate sedative-laden applesauce washed down with vodka and covered their heads in plastic bags. Y'all, like, come on. Can we just come up with a better way to die? Massive, like, it's, yeah, it's pretty brutal. Um, it's so brutal. Uh, yeah, it's like, look, this is, like, I, you know, it's very funny, like, the ideas that he had, they're very funny, but it's really sad that a lot of people were duped into this, so I just feel like I have to say that, like, if I'm, you know, we're kind of being tongue-in-cheek, and some of this is kind of funny, but it's, I'm very sad about the, the dozens of people who were duped into this guy's sleep, right? Um, And, yeah, like, I, I, at that point, they were, you know, I mean, think about how much they were brainwashed, and had their life in 12 minute increments and so I can't imagine that kind of pressure once you sort of bought into that um but it was discovered that half of the deceased males um that had that had gone through with the suicide including the leader Marshall Applewhite were surgically castrated probably due to the belief in celibacy amongst the group Members left behind a disturbingly upbeat videotaped message before the mass suicide showing they were excited to slough off this mortal coil and move on to the next level. I just want to, like, I just want to, like, interject here. Maybe, maybe, maybe just keep asking the question why. Maybe be that, like, irritating four-year-old who's just like, why, why, why? It's not a bad way to go. I'm just saying. I'm just it really saying. isn't. It's, you know, it's, I'm going to call that the safety dance. Just keep asking why. Just keep, just keep dancing, asking why. <laughs> um, their website, heavensgate.com, because it was 1997, so websites happened, was updated right before the mass suicide, which states, Hillbop brings closure. Hillbop <laughs> brings closure to Heaven's Gate. Our 22 years of classroom here on planet Earth is finally coming to conclusion. Graduation from humanity, from humanity evolutionary level. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew. The website is still up and managed by the surviving members. And it's a trip. It looks exactly like mid-90s website. Yeah, so two surviving websites from the 90s that haven't changed are the Space Jam website and Heaven's Gate. So go take a look at both of those. It, is it, it all like, just like black background and neon green font? It's a lot of clip art and yeah. like, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, but the, the, the I feel like spa- while Space Jam is super fun, like Hail Pop is the creepy like uh, foil to that. Like it's, it's very creepy to look at sure. um, and, and know that all these people are dead, right? Um, so weird fun fact, uh, because they all wore Nikes when they died, Nike discontinued that particular model of shoe (laughs) called decades. And if you have them, they are worth seven grand now. And a weird other fun fact, I have an odd connection to this or rather the comment hail bop. My family went out, uh, 
to the park to get a good look at the comet that night, you know, because it was like, oh, this comet's coming around. You're only going to see it like once in your lifetime. And while that happened, our house was robbed. Um, so that whole night was surreal because we came home, found out our house was robbed, the cops were out, and then we turned on the TV and then found out all these people were dead. Like, it was just the weirdest night. Yeah. So it was, yeah. And so that night, the night that they all died kind of sticks out in my memory. I'm sorry your house was robbed. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, that was like, what, 20 years ago? So I've had some time to, to process it. I'm good. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so obviously we're only, we're not even scratching the surface. Like there's so many cults that we've left out. Warren Jeffs, Fundamentalist Church, and the Branch of Davidians. But we needed to narrow this down to make it acceptable. And so um, where we do land, like, what's the lethal concoction here? What makes people totally give themselves over to a cult? I kind of think it's the need to belong and the belief in the mission mixed with being, like, maybe desensitized to the behavior that's happening in the cult over a period of time. So it's like abuse, uh, the kind, you know, like maybe that people experience in relationships, um, but on a much like larger scale, uh, thinking of why people stay in abusive relationships and then magnify that to a systemic community wide scale. Like I'm thinking of, um, there's a resource that y'all should Google. It's like, it's called the power and control wheel. And, um, I like to go through that. I'm a therapist and I like to go through that with people who have been experienced in intimate partner violence. And it kind of shows all the different ways that one can experience abuse and abuse of power. So like someone controlling your finances, someone controlling access to your kids, um, someone controlling access to medication, healthcare, someone controlling um, access to who you talk to, right? Like making you feel isolated. Um, someone uh, physically abusing you, sexually abusing you, psychologically abusing you, verbally abusing you. There's like all these kind of, um, it looks kind of like a, a wheel with different pieces of pie on it. And so I think if you take that and like um, magnify it to a systemic view, this makes sense to me in terms of how we view cults, right? Because uh, as we see these cults, uh, you know, go from go from utopias that are like, you know, some of these things are, you know, bad and, and egregious to like, holy shit, by the, you know, the mid 20th century and on, they just get like real bad, real bad. And they're just ticking off more things on this power and control wheel. It's, it's, it's about this isolation and control and abuse. And people are so much wanting acceptance that they're willing to put up with it in order to have a sense of belonging. Um, and, and a place and, and they don't know how to get out because they're so isolated and all the relationships are within this, this cult, this community. And so there's, it, it, they feel like there's no way out. You know, I actually think that that's a really good message for today and the way that we consume news and the way that we consume social media, because I think I, like I hear constantly and I feel it too, that there's this like, like you feel trapped in this bubble, right? Where everybody's kind of believing the same thing as you and you, there's like a sense, at least for me, that everybody knows that it's not exactly, like you're getting to the left of, or like getting to a weird place of rational, right? Mm -hmm. And as long as you, like 
as you stay inside a bubble, what becomes center is more to a extreme. And then like, mm-hmm. you know, and like, it just kind of keeps going and going. And I think it's really important for us to remember now in light of the political atmosphere that moderation is really important and being thoughtful and engaging with another and not isolating yourself and having those difficult conversations and not just blindly following or not asking the question why because it's uncomfortable like these are things that we really need to like double down on yeah I think that is a that is a really good last word Sarah thanks I affirm you (laughs) (laughs) love it (laughs) (laughs) I love it I love it I love it um Okay, thanks for uh, bearing with us. I know this is kind of a heavy episode, uh, but thank, and you know what? This came to you because you were, you know, a lot of you voted on Twitter who, you know, which cults you wanted to hear about. And so we're going to try to provide, you know, anytime that they, we're having kind of difficulty and overwhelmed with content, we want to throw that to you because this is for you all, you know, um, you, you get to be the beneficiaries of our research. So um, we want, we want to, pull that out to you all. So thanks for bearing with us. Um, we want to continue to ask you, please share your favorite episode with a friend, you know, go to, go to SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, tell your, you know, look through, find out which, which one's your favorite episode, send it to a friend, tell them to, um, subscribe to us. And cause we want to widen the conversation and you can find us at, yeah, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Yep. And, um, of course, you can contact us at, uh, at Bible Bitches on Twitter, our Bible Bitches fan page, um, on Facebook, uh, and, or you can, like, leave comments on SoundCloud. You know, um, just slide into our DMs. It's cool. Just, yeah, just, 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 just slide into our DMs. Come on. Um, <laughs> a big, big shout out, big thanks to Engage Gaze, um, our host website. They're fantastic. And thank you guys so much. Um, Aaron Doodles, you know, we love you. Um, we probably owe you more gifts, actually, at this point. Um, and at- by gifts, you mean G-I-F-S. Uh- <laughs> uh, don't worry. I, I occasionally, like, throw him bourbon. Like, <laughs> just like, here, here. Um, he does our artwork thanks at Aaron Doodles on Twitter yes lord (laughs) he puts up with so much from us (laughs) thanks Aaron love you and of course yo Eves you're always last but you're our favorite just kidding never least huh never least never least always our favorite yeah, she does our intro and outro, outro music, and uh, she continues to do shows around New York and tours around the country and internationally. So follow her on Twitter, and maybe she'll come to your city. Yeah, and thank you guys. We love you. Bye. Hey, you guys. I'm trying something new. <laughs>